A reading from the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians. For the love of Christ urges us on, because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the, me the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The word of the Lord. Let your countenance shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. Amen. Hello, everybody. I'm Johnny Walker. Uh, I'm not, obviously, most of you come here regularly, but I'm not a priest or a deacon, just one of the lay people in the church, and I serve often as an acolyte. Since Father Stephen is in Jerusalem, or I guess I think he's on his way back now, um, he asked if I would step in one of these weeks. So here I am. We just heard in our New Testament reading uh, what is one of probably the clearest of the Apostle Paul's summaries of what it is that he thinks he's doing as an apostle. His second letter to the church in Corinth is largely dedicated to defending his ministry and his authority as an apostle of Christ. He's calling on the church to recognize and acknowledge his apostleship. The Christians at Corinth had come basically to think that Paul didn't need to be taken very seriously. And what we find even later in the letter is that they had been accusing him of trying to take advantage of them. That his relationship to the church was more or less a means of his own self-seeking and self-serving. And so much of what the letter is devoted to is clearing up those misconceptions and offering a description of what it is that he is doing as Christ's apostle. Now, as with all of Scripture, when we read this, we're reading something that has to do with us. So the temptations and sins that came upon the church at Corinth are not just things that happened a long time ago and things that we don't have to worry about, but they're things that can tempt the church now. The community of Christ is a community that's caught up in the struggle between God and sin. It's caught up in the struggle between truth and deceit in faith and denial. And so we find ourselves in that same sort of position. There is a temptation for us, especially in this day and age in the Western church, to disregard and relativize Jesus' apostles. That's a real option for us. 
It, it might even seem that we have theological reasons to not take the apostles very seriously. Paul himself wrote earlier that uh, he rebukes the church for saying, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos. And he goes on to say, what is Apollos? What is Paul? They're not Christ. They're not the Son of God. They're human beings. If that's the case, then why do we need to care much about the, the apostles? In contemporary form, why do we need the scriptures? Sure enough, we might say they're important records of what early Christians believed, or they're important testimonies of experience of God, but they're ultimately just a human text, right? And we don't have to, ultimately, Christ is our authority, not any human. Part of the reason that I think 2 Corinthians is such a helpful letter for us is that it teaches us how to understand what an apostle is, and so by extension, what all of Holy Scripture is. It's often said that Scripture doesn't actually say very much about itself. If you were to look up in a concordance or something, references to Scripture, there really aren't that many. There are a few key verses that people often point to, but what there is a lot of is description of what apostles and prophets are. So if we want to understand what Scripture is, I think one of the key places we can look is when we find apostles or prophets describing what it is that they are. And when we understand what this robust theological description of the apostles and prophets is, we'll have a much better understanding of what it is that we're doing when we sit around and read Scripture or when Scripture is taught in the church. So what's crucial for us to grasp is that Paul's ministry, his work as an apostle, finds its source and its only justification in Christ's work of reconciliation. Paul can't speak about his ministry without speaking about what God has done in Jesus Christ. So crucially, what that means is that Christ's work of redemption, his saving work among us, includes within it the ministry of the apostles. There's not the ministry of Jesus that gets done with, and then he hands on the baton, and now the apostles do something else disconnected from him. Christ is working through the ministry of the apostles. Their preaching and testimony is not outside of God's redeeming action, but it's absorbed and included within it. So if we're to speak about Christ's work, that includes us speaking about his commissioning, his sending, and his empowering of the apostles. So what that means for us is that we, if, if we are to be an evangelical church, a church that's about the gospel, that's about what God has done for us in Christ, we must also be an apostolic church, a church that recognizes the witness of the apostles to Christ. And so we can see this in 2 Corinthians 5 in our reading by tracing Paul's argument. He begins first by telling us in a remarkably concentrated statement what it is that is the very center of the gospel. He says, One has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is about as good of a summary as you can get of what the atoning work of Christ is about. It's, this was a tough passage to preach on because there's so many single verses that you could spend a long, long time trying to unfold because they're just such concentrated pieces of teaching. Now, when Paul speaks of one who's died for all, therefore all have died, we'll fail to understand what he's saying if we just think of Jesus as simply another man living among men and women. The death of any person, no matter how significant, 
can only have a limited significance for the rest of time in history. Sure enough, millions of people have died throughout all of human history, and most of them we don't think about at all, we don't know about, and it has very little significance for our day-to-day -day lives. So why then should Jesus of, Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth be any different for us? Why should we pay attention to the death of this single human being? What could it have to do with us? The reason for it is because Christ is not just another man among us. When the eternal Son becomes incarnate, he, assume, he assumes human nature, not just as another instance of humanity, but as the very representative of all of humanity, or as Paul would say, the head of all of us. He's our stand-in, so what happens to him is what happens to us. Everything that Jesus does in his life has to do with us. The reformers sometimes spoke about this as calling, by calling Christ a public person or a corporate person, which is, is a way of saying that he's not private. It's not that what he does just has to do with his own purpose and goals for himself, but it has to do with all of the world, and it has to do with all of humanity. The way I like to put it is that Jesus is an extrovert, or he's a roomy person. He has room within himself to gather up other people into his own identity, that we're not just left on the outside, but that he can gather us within. So what this means is that when Christ died, he didn't simply die instead of us, so that we see something happening going on outside over there, but when he died, we died in him. That's what substitution means. When he died, we died with him. Paul says in Romans 6 that when Christ was crucified, our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. In our passage, Paul goes on to say that in Christ the old has passed away and the new has come. So what this means is that in Christ we're seeing not merely the death of a man, but the death of all that is of the old order, all that is part of rebellion against God, all that is turned away from God and is death-dealing. We see all of that put to death in Christ's cross. Jesus on the cross gathers up all that is sinful, all that is against God, and sees it crucified. But because he's the Lord of life, death's powers cannot hold him, and so he rises again, but not just escaping death for himself, but bringing all of us with him. In Christ's resurrection, what we see is the new creation of God's reign beginning. The old way of life that lived to self, Paul tells us, a way of life that was centered in our own self-fulfillment, now gets put away for a life that's lived to God and that's lived to Christ. This is what reconciliation and the reconciliation that Paul's ministry is all about. It's a return to friendship and fellowship with God not just because God's judgment against sin has been taken care of, not just because we've been forgiven of our sins, but because now we're enabled to live in grateful and happy response to God's kindness to us by the power of the Spirit. We're made to be a righteous people, a people that can live before God as we ought to, just as Christ did and Christ does. And more than that, and this part is fundamental for understanding the apostles' mission and their work, 
is that when Jesus was exalted to the right hand of the Father, what we witness, what we see in Christ's ascension, is not just the, exalt, the exaltation of him, but the exaltation of all of humanity in him. This is the glorification of humanity that we see being promised throughout all of Scripture. Psalm 84 puts it like this, You made him a little while lower than the angels, but you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. The writer of Hebrews commenting on that verse tells us that when Christ ascended, when he was lifted up to the position at the right hand of the Father with all things in subjection under his feet, that he brought many sons to glory. What that language is doing is telling us that when Christ ascends, he takes us with him. That, he is, that when he is glorified, humanity is glorified with him. In other words, the authority that Jesus receives in his exaltation is an authority that he doesn't just keep to himself, but that flows out to humanity through him. His authority is an authority that authorizes others. His power is a power that empowers others. And so St. Paul tells us in the letter to the Ephesians, speaking of the ascension, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, that would be us, and he gave gifts to men. So when Christ ascends, he pours out gifts. What is that gift? It's the gift that came at Pentecost. It's the gift of the Spirit being poured out upon the church. Importantly, it's the gift of the Spirit calling the apostles to the ministry of witnessing to Christ's gospel. So what all this means is that when we hear the scriptures read, we are listening to the ambassadors of Christ, those through whom Christ is making his appeal. The apostles are a picture of redeemed and restored humanity made capable of serving and witnessing to Christ. So as we read Paul, we don't read one who's telling us about himself, we read one who's telling us about Christ. And the living Jesus, risen and exalted, is speaking to us through the ministry of the apostles. They speak on behalf of Christ, and Christ speaks through them. So through the written witness of Scripture, we are being summoned to the reconciliation and the friendship with God that the gospel is all about. The fundamental takeaway, then, from this passage, or at least one angle on it, is that we ought to listen to what Scripture tells us. We ought to listen to the witness of the apostles and prophets. St. Paul makes as clear as day that the apostles are servants of Christ, and therefore they're servants of the church. In their authority, they are not lording over the church. They say they are slaves to the church. They empty themselves for the sake of the church. That's so much of what the Second Corinthians is about, is Paul's reminding them, I've emptied myself out for you. My whole ministry has not been about myself, but it's been about seeing Christ glorified and seeing you built up. So in a day and age when it's very tempting to relativize what the apostles have to say to us, the key thing to remember is that they're servants to us. Their, their teachings are there to serve and to benefit and to build us up. So if we reject their teachings, if we reject their ministry, we're rejecting the ministry of reconciliation by which God wants to make peace with us, by which God wants to establish communion with us. So the apostles aren't ultimately about the apostles. They're about the risen Christ. 
But importantly, the work and the ministry of reconciliation doesn't just end with the apostolic work, and it doesn't just end with Christ's work, but it's something that then flows out into the church. As the apostles were authorized by Christ, so we as the church are authorized by Christ to extend the work of reconciliation out toward the world. So what that means is that we have an obligation and a task and a freedom to see all of the hostilities in our world put to an end. At least among us, we are to seek to make peace with all people as best we can. Because God has made peace with us in Christ, we can make peace with others. This doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. What we see so much throughout scripture is when the people of God seek to make peace with others, there's often rejection at their hands. That's what we see happen in Christ. So there needs to be a readiness, an awareness that there may be suffering as we extend peace to others. But the obligation still stands for us. And we have the freedom and the peace in knowing that as we offer ourselves in friendship to others, even if we are rejected, we have God's approval, we have God's delight in us, and we have promised that even if we go into death, we have resurrection. First uh, John describes the movement here like this. It says, That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That's the movement of the church's mission. It's seeing what God has done for us in Christ and seeking communion with others so that they may have communion with God in Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.